Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, July 27th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are covering a couple of big topics this week uh, in a, a short regular episode before we prepare for our live show at Politicon in uh, Pasadena. More about that later. But uh, just because we're only covering a couple topics doesn't mean they're not big ones this week. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the abuse he's facing from President Donald Trump. And uh, we're also going to talk about just what that means in terms of the way that the White House and this administration operates. We're also going to talk about a uh, big and much criticized new policy initiative this week. President Trump tweeted earlier this week that he was going to ban uh, transgender people from serving in the United States military, reversing an Obama-era policy and drawing widespread condemnation from Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. We'll talk a little bit about why he did this, the political upshot that some people in his White House see, and how this reflects on kind of the broader policy chaos. A few notes before we jump into all that. Remember, as usual, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com with any questions you have. Please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews, if you have time, of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. We love getting your feedback. It helps us make the show better. So please uh, subscribe, rate, write a written review if you have time. Okay, we got the whole gang here this week. Senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. National political reporter, Eliana Johnson. Hola. And senior reporter, Nancy Cook. Hello. And uh, just a reminder, Dan Diamond will be joining Charlie and Nancy uh, this weekend from 6 to 7 p.m. on Saturday, July 29th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Justice Hall for a live taping of the Nerdcast at Politicon. Did you see a smoldering black and white headshot on the Politicon website? (laughs) It's very good. You guys are pretty excited about it, huh? My headshot is fuzzy. We will be posting that episode Monday, July 31st, so you'll be able to listen to it in your normal uh, podcast stream as usual. If you have questions you'd like uh, Dan, Charlie, and Nancy to answer during the live show, email our producer, Rachel Cusick, at rcusick, R-C-U-S-I-C-K, at politico.com. And uh, we can get get a little bit of a Q&A going at the end of that Politicon show. So once again... Uh, 6 to 7 p.m. Saturday, July 29th at the Pasadena Convention Center in uh, Southern California. With that, let's jump into our first segment this week, our data point number one. That is the number of United States senators who endorsed Donald Trump for president during the Republican primaries in 2016, while the primaries were still in doubt, that is. And that senator was Jeff Sessions, now the attorney general. And this is what it got him. I am disappointed in the attorney general. Uh, He should not have recused himself, and if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me prior to taking office, and I would have quite simply picked somebody else. 
That's in addition to a string of mean tweets over the past week from Trump calling Sessions beleaguered, uh, basically bullying him uh, (laughs) and seemingly trying to force him force him out without actually doing it. Eliana, why is Trump doing this? (laughs) Um, Well, I don't think. Simple question. Yes. uh, Well, depends on how you look at it. I don't think Trump's emotional life is all that complex. So I think he's uh, he's doing this because he's angry, which is pretty clear. And he wants the attorney general to resign, which the new communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, essentially conceded to the radio talk show host, Hugh Hewitt. But the president doesn't actually like to fire people. And so he's venting his anger without actually having a direct conversation with the attorney general or firing him. So it seems to me like this um, this standoff is fated to continue for a long time or at least until the president's anger dissipates. Um, the other thing I think is, is sort of clear is a more general thing about, um, about the president, which is that he really seems only to respect people who are either rich or who are high-ranking military officers because I think he, he may – get angry at people like H.R. McMaster or Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson, but I don't think that he would publicly humiliate them in the way that he's doing to Jeff Sessions, who I think he considers weak because he's not a hugely wealthy person or a high-ranking military officer. Well, and in, and in this instance, he considers him weak because he recused himself from the, the from dealing with the Russia probe, right? Like that's the point from which the rest of this sprouted. That is, but more broadly, I think uh, somebody else in, in his cabinet could have done something like that and wouldn't be treated the way that Sessions is being treated by Trump. I also think that's the reason that Trump doesn't seem to respect Ryan Priebus or Sean Spicer, who haven't recused themselves of anything or, or things like that. But what I think is significant is that now you're starting to see for the first time in the Trump presidency or going back to the campaign, you're starting to see uh, Republicans in Congress put some real parameters on what he can do here uh, this morning, it's Thursday right now, um, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham came out and said that there will be no hearings to confirm a new attorney general if the president does decide to fire Jeff Sessions in 2017, which means that the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, would be the attorney general at least for the next uh, six or, uh, or five months, depending on when that firing were to happen, um, and that they would essentially make it hell for him to fire Robert Mueller without enormous consequences. So um, you're really starting to see that Republicans in Congress step into action to try to limit the damage that the president can do. The thing I don't understand about this is why Trump thinks this is not a terrible idea. Like when I'm angry, I have a snack. Or something like that. All right, try and take a walk. Scott I, just I, eats. You're so mild mannered. <laughs> Scott's <laughs> angry. He just he just eats all of his anger. I don't think he's somebody who actually thinks through his behavior. He, um, he's, I think he's pretty elementary in that way. Um, you know, when people. When people grow up, they begin to think through the consequences of their actions. And I don't, I don't think that that's something 
uh, the president does uh, in particular when he's angry. Charlie? I, I don't think that the president would respect your uh, snack-eating rage. I mean, he is a guy who <laughs> what he respects, and this, this is uh, piggybacking on what Eliana said, is he respects alpha male expressions. That is the world he thinks he lives in. Uh, he sees himself as sort of the ultimate alpha male, and that's what he respects. That's why uh, the only... You think you're a sissy, Scott. <laughs> yeah. A girly man. Um, so, But here's the other thing. So, so we know a lot about his psyche through through these kind of actions, but we're also learning a lot about the way he thinks about politics and his view of the political world. And it's very much like an old school machine boss. Uh, he believes in the political values of allies must be rewarded, critics must be crushed, and we've seen that in his dealings with the Senate. I mean, keep in mind that he is, he has taken down Jeff Sessions, which is not just a, a, a public evisceration and humiliation of Sessions, but it's also an affront to the Senate. Uh, you know, he does not respect those sort of courtly, mannerly ways. He doesn't respect tradition like that. But you've seen it. He also doesn't respect the boundaries of party either because he's taking down Sessions, his most loyal supporter in the Senate. But he's also gone at Nevada Senator Dean Heller. Keep in mind that his uh, political group or the White House's political arm ran ads against him before they pulled down, before they pulled them down. And the president behind the scenes actually celebrated those attacks on Heller. And keep in mind what the White House is doing right now with the sort of slow burning of uh, Jeff Flake by having in all his prospective primary challengers. And then today, the great story uh, out of Alaska about uh, the uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke calling Alaska's two senators to tell them there is going to be payback for Lisa Murkowski's vote on health care. And keep in mind, these are the members of his own party. Yeah, that's that that story was so remarkable to me that a cabinet secretary would get on the phone and try to intimidate uh, two senators about uh, about their potential votes. That was a, a real window into how the administration's operating. But back to Sessions for a second. I mean, I think what Eliana said is accurate is that, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress are have come out in defense of Sessions. And this is an effort to put some boundaries up against Trump. What's interesting is that there have also been a number of conservative groups who supported Sessions during the confirmation process and spent a lot of money to ensure that that went smoothly that also came out uh, not necessarily with some big mobilized support but put out a lot of statements this week just saying that you know Sessions was running the Department of Justice the way that they wanted him to uh, you know they liked the direction he was taking it in and just reminding the president that he was also uh, fulfilling a lot of the campaign promises at the DOJ uh, in what he was doing. But I don't think that necessarily matters to Trump because he just thinks that Sessions isn't loyal and that's the the main problem. The loyalty is the the like really remarkable aspect of it and the importance that, that Trump obviously places on it, but the the one way street that it is. Well, I just find it so interesting because the loyalty even plays into the way that they have uh, tried to fill jobs at agencies, which you would think like that's kind of far removed from the president and cabinet secretaries and political appointees should be able to fill those jobs. But, uh, you know, the president has been reviewing every hire. And one of the questions that comes up in, you know, as he's reviewing them is, was he loyal? Was this person loyal to Trump during the campaign? Did this person say anything bad? The other thing that I think is so interesting about this is that clearly White House aides do not want the president to fire Jeff Sessions. So the way that they're going about communicating this to him is they're trying to launch a media campaign by <laughs> pushing Republican senators and 
the president's allies on the outside to go on television and say publicly that they think it's a really bad idea, that it would be disastrous. I mean, this is the way that you're seeing. um, We've heard about this before, but this is really the way that people communicate with the president. Um, They don't tell him directly that they think it would be the wrong thing to do, but they have people go on television and talk about the political consequences of this action. Well, and that dovetails perfectly with Nancy's point about loyalty and the obvious importance that the president places on television. Someone we've seen a lot on television over the last week is the new White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci. Smooth transition. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. But how, how does the, he he's become Trump's chief defender in his, his hiring uh, prompted Sean Spicer to resign after all the many indignities visited upon him during his time as press secretary. It was getting layered over by this this donor, uh, this private equity guy that that <laughs> caused Spicer to leave the White House. But Scaramucci was not loyal to the campaign uh, the whole way through. He was a latecomer to Team Trump, right? He, I think he was a Scott Walker supporter and then I think a Jeb Bush supporter. Right. Yes. And he said and tweeted all sorts of not nice things about Trump. Some of them were true, but they weren't necessarily nice. But yet here he is. And he's he's now in the inner circle. He's waging war on Trump's chief of staff, apparently, or at least he says, with Trump's approval. Uh, so what, how, how do you square that circle? What's so funny, I think, is that Trump does create this alternate reality where you saw he told the Wall Street Journal that um, no, really, Scaramucci, I was his first choice all along. Don't listen to what other people are saying. Trump Trump was his first choice. So it is amusing in a certain way that he um, that he creates this completely different universe for himself. And I think, look, this is what I was saying about his Trump's comfort level with people who are either rich or high-ranking military office, officers. Fundamentally, I don't think loyalty plays a role in any of this. If somebody was actual, actually disloyal, Trump will just come around and say that, no, they actually were loyal. Fundamentally, I think he feels comfortable with his family members and then with New Yorkers who or, or people who are wealthy and with military officers for whatever reason. And he feels less comfortable with people who have – backgrounds that are different from that. And there is no squaring of the circle. I mean, I think the mistake that many of us in the press have made is trying to find what's the logic, what's driving this, where's the, you know, what, what, is the, what is the goal, what is the end game? There is none. I mean, we have to just settle in that this is going to be the way it is for four years. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. We are subject to the president's whims. And this is a perfect example because uh, Scaramucci was, as everyone mentioned, not even on board. Yet he got a pass. Here's a president who prizes and values loyalty above all, but he, he has given a pass to a guy who called him a hack on Twitter. But I think where Scaramucci connects with him is they, ha- they, they inhabit the same milieu. They, they're both big money guys with big personalities, uh, see themselves as sort of, you know, uh, alpha males, big dogs on Wall Street. I mean, here's the th- They're both obsessed with the media. Obsessed with the media and money and also very... <laughs> Egocentric. I mean, among the things that we know about Scaramucci is the fact that he went to Harvard Law School because he tells us a hundred times a day. And then the <laughs> other interesting thing about Scaramucci is this: this is sort of the, the the central irony of the Trump administration. He is now the what the leading inspector trying to hunt down all the leakers in the administration. Well, every reporter in Washington knows, and it's it's a huge joke in every newsroom in Washington that Scaramucci was the biggest leaker about Trump stuff. 
when you needed the quote, you went to him because he would give it all up, whether it was uh, related to Trump or anything else he was involved in. He was the go-to leak guy. Or the other two campaigns that he backed before. Nancy? Well, I think what's interesting, too, is I I do think Scaramucci is going to end up walking the thin line on this because, uh, you know, part of working for President Trump is, you know, he likes people that can defend him and go on TV effectively, but then he doesn't like people who get too much attention. Uh, You know, he didn't like it when there was a cover story that I think Time did on Steve Bannon kind of running the White House. And Josh Green has this new book out about Steve Bannon, too, which I don't think has been going over well in the White House. But, um, you know, I could also see Scaramucci in the coming weeks potentially becoming overexposed and and that starting to irritate people, or at least that's a potential pothole I say for him. That's a great point because I actually think he's he's pretty good. When he's on his game, he he is very good uh, in that role. He was very good in his first appearance. And that makes him very different than Sean Spicer, who I think uh, was, uh, you know, very bad at that job. He was uh, – <laughs> it, it, well, it's, it's true. I mean, having dealt to put with, it gently, uh, he, he was very bad. He was very bad. Uh, it's hard to, to overstate how terrible he was at that job. Uh, and I say that as somebody who had, you know, uh, some experience dealing with him at the RNC. He was not good at that job either. You can't have somebody running your your press operations that hates the press and doesn't respect the First Amendment who isn't really all that sharp to begin with. I mean, I think even I don't think I, I mean, I know this sounds really harsh, but I think, you know, from one, one of the things I've heard from Republican friends in the Stafford community is like, I mean, it's. It's not like Spicer was considered the top of the class or, you know, the cream of the crop. In our second segment, we're about to get into a big example of kind of like how personnel chaos at the White House is causing policy chaos. Besides the the new transgender military policy, which we're about to jump into, I mean, how how is this affecting healthcare, taxes, the the long laundry list of of agenda items that that this administration has up and is constantly every day getting overshadowed, Nancy? Well, it just means it's totally overshadowed every single day because there's some sort of like personnel crisis or, you know, Scaramucci tells Hugh Hewitt that, you know, yes, the president is really disappointed with, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions or, you know, for instance, the the interview that he gave to the New York Times on uh, that sort of set off this whole session's unhappiness was right before the Senate was taking a key health care vote. And then even today, later today, this big six group, which includes congressional leaders and admit Treasury and White House officials are going to roll out this uh, you know, tax plan or just statement of principles about taxes heading into the August recess. But that has been totally overshadowed so far today by you know, Scaramucci picking a fight on Twitter with Reince Priebus this morning because a Politico reporter, one of our colleagues, had accessed his financial disclosure, which is a public document, and he said that Reince Priebus had leaked it. So like every day, the White House sort of steps on itself with this personnel drama. And then it's funny because as someone who covers policy like myself, they spend all day complaining that reporters don't ever write about policy, but they themselves are – creating this Game of Thrones every day and feeding into it. And on on top of that, as, as Charlie mentioned earlier, we're in the middle of this key set of votes on any number of issues. And the White House or the, the administration, I should say, the interior secretary is threatening to, you know, usually reliable Republican votes from Alaska with loss of loss of projects, loss of, you know, all sorts of bad stuff for their state when I mean, it's, it's not like they're not going to need them in the future. I'll give him credit for that. I mean, I think uh, that was a powerful message to send to uh, the Senate that they did that. But here's the one thing that I will give them credit for, because I don't think 
I have to say that oftentimes they operate in ways that uh, I can't understand, but it was very clever to have. It wasn't the Department of Transportation. It wasn't uh, education. It wasn't commerce. It was interior. So they wanted to send a message uh, where it hurts for Alaska. You know, interior and energy are probably the departments that, that matter the most in a state to a state like Alaska. Obviously, the, uh, the energy uh, and the extraction economy and all the federal land there. So they had the cabinet secretary who would make them shudder the most, make the key call. Yeah, that's true. I just wonder. I just wonder if uh, they'll get the reaction they're looking for uh, from that. Especially, I mean, the, the mere fact that 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 conversation leaked suggests to me that they they may not get the reaction they're looking for. Yeah, and I wonder if there is a little backlash coming because uh, it, it seemed I was surprised at the breadth of the sessions reaction from members uh, of the Senate. I mean, that was probably I can't think of another um, another issue area or another situation where so many members of the Republican Party voiced their opposition to uh, something Trump had done. I mean, was there anything that they had objected to? I mean, he's done a lot of things so far and upset the apple cart in lots of ways. But to me, this was the broadest expression uh, of unhappiness with something he had done. Well, let's, uh, as as it seems like we often do on the Nerdcast, let's pivot from from this kind of like general like discussion of chaos to an example of one particular instance where this is really affecting a policy. Uh, But first, let's take a quick break to hear from a Nerdcast sponsor. Okay, our second data point for this episode is the number 10,790. And that is the upper estimate in a 2016 Rand Corporation survey of how many transgender personnel were serving in the military at the time. On Wednesday, President Trump tweeted Wednesday morning that he, quote, will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military, uh, reversing on social media and Obama administration policy that, that you know, is not super old. We're talking about a, a year or, or two of this being rolled out and implemented. And then suddenly in uh, the space of three tweets, everything is thrown into thrown into question. So, Nancy... Where did this come from? This was not a traditional organized policy rollout (laughs) by any means. That is like the understatement of the month. Um, This was a really surprising policy rollout or just really surprising news to a lot of people um, and a really interesting and telling story about the way policy gets made in the administration. So basically, um, the House appropriators right now are trying to come up with the spending bills that they use to fund the government. And one of those is the defense spending bill. And it had a bunch of things in it that were campaign promises that Trump wanted, including some money to build his border wall with Mexico. But there was this fight on the Hill where uh, some defense hawks wanted uh, the the spending bill to eliminate funding for Pentagon-funded sex reassignment operations. So it was like this very niche piece of spending that they were fighting over. And someone told the president about that. And he basically just said, OK, well, let's ban all transgender people from the military. And uh, my colleagues, Rachel Bade and Josh Dossie, had this really great story where they had this great quote from someone about how this is like someone told the White House to light a candle on the table and the White House set the whole table on fire. <laughs> and basically the White House did this without you know, giving a huge heads up to the DOD or to the Pentagon. Uh, people were really caught off guard. It went against the wishes of Mattis uh, and 
Trump just went ahead and made the announcement over Twitter and everyone was scrambling. To me, it was really reminiscent of the immigration and travel ban that he put out early in his presidency, where, again, like the agencies weren't told, people were in mid-flight, there was no guidance, there were no there was no rulemaking, it caused massive chaos at airports where it was unclear whether or not people were going to be let back into the country. And this was sort of a similar thing. There was no sense of like, well, what happens to transgender people who are currently serving in the military? Like, what happens if they're in Afghanistan? And it was just the president made a decision, he saw an opportunity to cut a deal, and he did it. Uh, and there we are. Well, and now it's still not entirely clear what's going to happen with all this. We just There's actually just a breaking news alert from our, our colleagues at Politico. There will be, quote, no modifications to the military's transgender policy as a result of President Donald Trump's tweet, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs wrote in a message to top military officers on Thursday. So as of last night, it was st- the Obama era policy was still on the Defense Department website. That should tell you everything. But I thought the most revealing uh, comment of all came from uh, Arizona Congressman Trent Frank. So uh, if you don't know who Trent Franks is, he's kind of a, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of one of the most conservative members of the House, but uh, kind of a backbencher, right? Fair to say? OK. He's uh, a rabble rouser. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's not a guy. He's, he's not somebody who's sort of uh, came here to you know, be an inside uh, player or uh, a legislator. I mean, he, he's a guy who is a, re- a real believer, a very conservative uh, gentleman. He has been a supporter of, of the uh, amendment. He wanted more attention paid to this issue. But he, after <laughs> Trump's tweet, basically uh, said he didn't have an answer. He said he really wasn't sure how he felt about it, which was amazing to me, and that he ne- needed to look into it further because his point being, I wasn't in for the whole ban. I was just in for a position that I think will have uh, some resonance in many areas of this country, which is he didn't want taxpayer funds being paid for the gender assignment or reassignment surgeries. And that's all he had signed on for. And so for someone that conservative to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm going to need to look into this further really tells you a lot about how quickly this went down and how it doesn't really have even widespread uh, traction within the Republican Party right now. And to, to be clear, we're talking about a very small portion of the Pentagon's military you know, health care budget that was that was at issue here, which is now has now suddenly blown up into this bigger thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think of it as as a policy problem, because I think in the greater scheme of things, as you mentioned, it's, it's fairly small when you're talking about the expenses. Uh, it, the message is powerful. However, uh, you know, the politics of it, which, which I've sort of been thinking through is politically, I don't think ultimately it hurts him. Among the Trump base, it's not going to hurt him at right. all. Right. There just aren't enough people who really, really care about this. But what I think is ironic is Trump's always been this puzzling ally of social conservatives. And, um, you know, they were the champions of, of this effort. But the effort was, as as you made clear, to strip funding. And then Trump did come through for them, but in this bizarre way where he went so much farther than they had asked and left them feeling, um, you know, conflicted, I think, about about the outcome. I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on like the, the the wisdom of the political play here. All the signals from the Hill suggest that that maybe it wasn't. I, w- I thought it was maybe notable. It was, are, you, are you saying it was positive for him or negative? No, I'm saying I think it was negative. Mm-hmm. I was uh, a little surprised at how many uh, politicians from what you could call Trump country, either uh, Democrats or Republicans, you know, Heartland Heartland Democrats or you know Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, who uh, jumped out to to criticize this. Um, I I could be wrong, but the, I, that that suggested to me a more broad based d- 
discomfort with this uh, or or is, is what you're saying that this isn't a big enough this potentially isn't a broad enough issue that that you think you know will stick around in people's minds for for a long time i don't think he loses any voters who were trump voters as a result of this uh, i do think that one one prism that we need to look at this decision in is this uh, i don't think this is what generated it but we're going to have to start thinking this way soon right now if you look at the polling area if you look at the electoral map uh, there is no path to re-election at this moment, uh, short of a third-party challenger drawing uh, Democratic votes away from the Democratic nominee or short of the Democrats nominating another nominee as unpopular as Hillary Clinton and, and as unviable as she was in many parts of this country. So if you're the White House, you have to start thinking, what does that road to victory look like? It's not going to be over 50% probably. It's probably going to be under 50%. And that means they're going to have to squeeze it. And if they look at the polls and they're honest with themselves and they're smart about the, the, the politics of it, they're going to realize uh, we're never going to win over Democrats. We uh, are really struggling with independence and we're getting close to the point where we have to decide what kind of election is this? Is this an election where we squeeze out every single last conservative vote? Uh, do we max it out, squeeze every ounce of juice out of the lemon? How do we do that? And one of the ways you do that is you start hitting hard on all the social issues. And you just forget about what the elite media says. You forget about what the suburbs think. You forget about all that. And you go as hard right as possible and attempt to max out every possible vote and go with a coalition that probably you know uh, looks a, li- a lot like the one the last one he won. I think that's an interesting point. I, I guess the thing, but the the biggest portion of his coalition was uh, uh, non college educated white voters, and he won about two thirds of them according to the exit polls. But he also narrowly won white college graduates, and I just I wonder if maybe no single individual action like this, but. Uh, you know, if if his coalition was made up of a combination of people who felt like things were broken and wanted to shake things up, and people who felt like things were going okay for them but wanted to take a chance on shaking things up, like at some point, I wonder if stuff like this starts to starts to destabilize the kind of second part of the coalition. To me, I, I wonder, does this be, it, a lot depends on how the public perceives this. Do they perceive this as an equal protection issue uh, or do they view it as a uh, taxpayer issue? And it's a really important distinction. One is the unfairness of it, the perception of unfairness or targeting uh, one specific group, which will not uh, accrue to his his advantage. But if they see it as a taxpayer advantage, like, hey, why, why are these people getting uh, this expensive surgery uh, why am I paying for that? I don't have a problem with it, but why am I paying for it? Like, if that's the way ultimately people perceive it, then I don't think it, it's really a handicap for him. Well, let's move from the political upshot or downshot of, of this or, or whatever Side it is. Shot. Side shot. Side yeah. <laughs> shot. Bank uh, shot. Side show. <laughs> to, I mean, in terms of the actual uh, effect this is going to have on people who are service members uh, right now, do we do we have any sense of what that's going to be? We've, I mean, this this announcement this morning from the Joint Chiefs certainly makes it seem like at least for the moment there isn't. But if at some point the White House, is, say, issues an executive order to go along with the tweet or, or issues instructions to the Secretary of Defense to kind of start moving in this direction, it still seems likely, right, Nancy, that this could be yet another Trump administration initiative that ends up caught up in court. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, the ACLU already announced that they're, they're taking this to court. So I do think... This, and, whatever and, it is. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I think that no matter what happens, the, this is going to be tied up in, in lawsuits. The administration is going to be forced to defend it in court. 
And that's been true for, you know, the travel ban, obviously. And, um, you know, I think that'll be true also for a lot of the deregulatory stuff that Trump wants to do. You know, they want to roll back a lot of regulations, a lot of Obama era regulations. And a lot of those environmental ones are going to see core challenges, too. I, I think that's something the administration and the president in particular underestimated, the fact that the court system is independent and uh, will challenge him. Okay, well, we are going to have to wait and see what happens uh, on that, and we'll see if this story continues to to develop any further. If the White House does end up uh, kind of following through on that Twitter announcement with something more, or if this kind of fades, uh, everyone, thank you for being here. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Eliana. Thank you. Thank you. And Charlie, thanks as always. We'll miss you in LA, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to miss you guys in LA too. I, I hope it's a good show, though. I'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> And as always, thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have questions. Please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews if you have time of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Also, remember, 6 to 7 p.m. on Saturday, July 29th in Pasadena, California, the Nerdcast will be recording a live show at the Pasadena Convention Center in Justice Hall during Politicon. Uh, Dan Diamond will be joining Nancy Cook and Charlie Matessian for a conversation there. We will be posting that episode on our regular podcast stream on Monday, July 31st, so you can listen as well. Once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our producer, Rachel Cusick, our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and the Nerdcast's researcher, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again soon from Pasadena, and you will hear from us again as usual next week. And stay tuned to hear about Politico's off-message podcast featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger in its most recent episode. Hi, I'm Isaac Dover. If you like Politico's other podcasts, you will love Off Message, where I interview politicians and celebrities from both sides of the aisle and all walks of life. Start with the Arnold Schwarzenegger episode. The Terminator and I commandeered an empty committee room in Washington to talk gerrymandering, bodybuilding, why he gets under Trump's skin, and how Austrian Arnold and American Arnold, sitting on either of his shoulders, argue with each other all day long. Look for Off Message in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.